start with the scripture today. I've got a few I'm going to start with. Uh, John 8, 31, 32, and then Matthew 7, 24 through 27. So you can read along on the screen, or if you brought a Bible, that's great, or look on the Bible on your phone. John 8, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Uh, I grew up, as I've said many times, I grew up in Goldsboro, which is kind of a stone's throw to the beach, depending on where you go at the beach. It's about an hour-ish to, say, like Moorhead City or something. And I was a kid. We would go to the beach a lot, and many of you, of course, have been. Um, Isn't North Carolina a great state? You can just go to the mountains or the beach. Uh, So all these new people, we're glad you're here. You moved from out of state, but it's getting kind of crowded. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I couldn't imagine growing up in, like, Kansas or something, and you just never see the ocean, you know? But um, when I was a kid, we saw a beach house being built, and I always never thought about this. You know, I thought you just put poles on the sand, and it just works somehow. But then I saw these huge water jets they use to pump down and blast out the sand until you get to something firm, right? And then you put, the, you put the, the poles deep in the ground so that when the rains eventually come, when the hurricane comes every October, when it beats against that house, hopefully the foundation stands because it's built on something solid, something below the sand. That's an analogy we all will obviously get. Clearly, Jesus' teaching here is that our lives are that house, and what we build our lives on matters. And if we don't build our lives on rock, eventually, not when, but it, not if, but when those storms come, and they will, uh, and not just through suffering or pain or difficulty in life, but I think there's storms of deception, there's storms of lies that beat against our lives when those things come, you will be built firmly on something that will withstand the winds, the things that beat against our lives. So that's why we're closing today with this series we've done called Lies We Believe, that we're going to focus a lot on the truths of, of what truth is, um, to kind of end on a positive note. What, what are the, why is it important to focus on truth, the philosophical nature of truth? Um, because the more we focus on the truth, the more it is easy to determine what lies are. When you live and marinate on what's actually true, it's almost instantaneous and instinctual that you pick out lies in a discernment level almost immediately because you know you're grounded in what's actually true. And you just, it's, it's almost, like for example, when I, I'm gonna read off a whole list of lies that are um, about God. And so I'm making this clear. These are not truths, okay? These are lies about, and some people believe these things about God. Um, here, here they are. God can be whoever you want him to be. Human beings are not sinful and alienated from God apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ's death on the cross was not an ultimate substitutionary act for the sins of the world. I know people that believe that. Christ did not rise from the dead. The role and function of the Holy Spirit 
is relatively unimportant. We've been in churches like that. <laughs> or, <laughs> no, anyway, um, salvation has to be earned through works by being a good person. We'll talk about that one. The local church does not play a role, a crucial role on earth, especially in the development of your faith. You, you can be a Christian and not go to church, basically. Jesus is not returning again one day. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you are a good person, everybody's going to heaven. It's like the old Hank Williams song, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die, right? Now, every statement I just read is a mistruth, a whopper, a lie, a bending of what is actually true, a massaging of the truth, as you could say, because the Bible says every single statement that you just heard is contrary. So that's why it's so important to refocus on what's true so that you can determine what's false when those things come at our lives. Not if, but when. That's why daily Bible reading is so important. That's why even memorizing scripture is so important. That's why coming to church and hearing scripture being read is so important. That's why it's central to what worship is. Like, hey, worship happens if you have word, the Bible, and table, communion. That's worship. I love all the other parts of it, but as long as you have word and table and the Holy Spirit's presence, you have worship. So the word is central. That's why it's so important to stay grounded in the truth, focusing on the truth. So here's three truths about truth. Three truths about truth. First is that truth is not ours. Truth comes piece by piece. Truth often leads through pain. So the first is truth is not ours. In John chapter 18, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. He's being given a mock trial. The Jewish leaders at the time, uh, of course, want him gone. They want him dead. They can't do it themselves on the Sabbath. They can't carry through what they want to do. So they want to leverage the Roman occupiers to get their goal, which is Jesus dead. And so they manage to get him in front of Pontius Pilate, the prefect, the governor, if you will, over that province, uh, the Middle East and Israel, and they managed to pull that off after getting, oh, this is before he's beaten, and well, I'm not sure. But they, yeah, they, yeah, this is after he's been beaten, because he summons Jesus again. Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own? I love this, by the way. Think about this. He's beaten and bloodied. He's before this, you know, big dog in the world back then. And even though Jesus knows what is coming in just a few hours. He asked Pilate a very important question. Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Even at that moment, Jesus is, sees the, inter the interior of who Pontius Pilate is. He sees a potential dialogue and a tension within him that he's not, Pilate doesn't know who Jesus is. He's still, and Jesus is probing, saying, are you asking this on your own? Jesus knows the answer. He wants to see if Pilate knows the answer. He sense this internal struggle. Pilate gives a pretty coarse response to Jesus. I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priests have handed you over to me. So what have you done? He answered, my kingdom. See, interesting, he doesn't answer Pilate's question the way Pilate expects. He says, my kingdom is not from this world. So he acknowledges that he's a king. My, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Jesus asked him, so you are a king. 
He answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world. To testify to the truth. This statement is really important. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? We asked Veritas. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. So Pilate gives sort of a callous reply to Jesus' question. Is this your answer? Or did someone else tell you that I'm the king of the Jews? What is it? And Pilate's response is a classic sort of pagan um, his core belief is self-preservation, this sort of uh, what you call today a moral relativist, that someone that goes, look, I, I don't know who you are, I don't really care. So I just want this to go away, basically. I didn't ask for this problem today when I woke up, and so I'm trying to make this go away. I don't really care if you're the truth or the king of the Jews or whatever, but, but like Pilate, this generation is maybe the most confused about truth in the entire history of the world. We may be the most perplexed about the nature of truth, like Pilate, that we just want to simply make it go away. I want truth to be what I want it to be. What is truth, Jesus? I don't, it, truth's what I determine it to be. That's how typically people would answer today. Like if I went on the street today and uh, asked 100 people, that would take a while, let's say 10. If I asked 10 people, um, what is truth? Uh, do you determine it for yourself or is it determined for you in a larger narrative that you subscribe to? That you, if you imagine one umbrella over your life or a large umbrella that encompasses all of humanity, it, do you, which one would you choose? Do you determine truth for yourself like a million tiny umbrellas or, you, or is it determined for you one giant umbrella? How do you think people would answer? How do you think? Tiny. They go tiny umbrella. Oh, yeah, yeah, me. Yeah, it's me. I determine it for myself. No one tells me what's true and what's false. I, I make it up for, my, for myself. So, yeah, that's true. I think that's how most people would feel, that truth is essentially subjective. But here's the great irony and chaos of the moral and ethical dilemma of postmodern America. Those same people who say truth is subjective, I determine it for myself. I have my own core beliefs. I make up my own truth. They then turn around and demand that you follow their truth. And if you don't do it, I will unfollow you, I will shun you, I will forget you, I will ghost you, I will block you and cut you out of my life, right? And so we're trying to have it both ways. Well, I want to determine what truth is, but I also demand that you do it or else. It's a recipe for disaster, a recipe for chaos. That truth is not yours. It's not mine. That truth is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. That he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So like Pilate, so many, and maybe that's you today, so many people ask, what is truth? Jesus is, I mean, Pilate is looking in the face of the embodiment of truth, and he asks a really ignorant question, but it's a good question, but it's ignorant. He could have asked Jesus anything, he could have asked him, what's the secret to life? Will you heal my physical problem? Give me a sublime mystery of the universe. Can you recite pi to every possible digit? Of course he could. Could you do that? But he doesn't ask Jesus that question. Pilate asks a question that shows he doesn't even really know what truth is. 
He thinks he does. He's a pagan. He's a moral relativist. My whole life has been about me and what I determine it to be. But he's looking in the face of the one who is truth. And Jesus gives a very compassionate response, doesn't he? Do you ask this for yourself? Or did someone else tell you? What's your answer? Because I'm the truth. And when you come up against the truth, ultimately you have to give a yes or no answer to that question. Pilate's answer shows that Pilate doesn't know the truth. Jesus said, those who know the truth listen to my voice. We're going to talk about that. How do you hear his voice and know the truth? Jesus says that those who belong to the truth listen to his voice. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time listening nowadays. Life's a little bit busy, yeah? It can be a little bit overwhelming. We have to pause and listen for his voice. We should know how he speaks. Could Jesus speak from the clouds like Monty Python or something like that, like God, you know, from the clouds he could? Typically, it doesn't work that way. It's usually a very still, small prompting that we typically overlook. But the more you get into hearing his voice, seeking his presence, desiring to know him above all other things and people, it gets easier and easier to hear his voice the more you just can discern it and grow in his presence, right? Like I have a friend who's a police officer in Winston-Salem. Well, he used to be. He's not anymore. But he was for many years. And he went to the police academy, of course, like you do. And he said, Clark, you know what? When we learn how to spot a fake ID, which I may or may not have had one of those. (laughs) It's my confession in church today. What's that movie, Super Bad? When they had everybody, sorry. <laughs> so you know we spot a fake ID? He said we don't spend our time looking at fake IDs. We spend our time looking at real IDs. So that when I hold a fake one, I just instinctually know it's fake. My brain knows that it's fake because I've spent so much time studying what the real artifact looks like. Or people in the Secret Service who protect the president, of course, but did you know a great part of their work is stopping counterfeiters? And the, 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 the main denomination of money that is counterfeited more than any other is the $20 bill. That's why it's got so much crap on it, right? Sorry, I said crap. It's got so much stuff, like the strip and the hologram and whatever, all that stuff's on the 20 because it, it's the most counterfeited bill. And what do they do? They spend most of their time studying the real thing. So you can spot the fake when it comes across. As a Christian, you spend, you have the spirit of Jesus inside of you. That's the good, one of the, one of the good news, pieces of good news of the gospel. We have the spirit of God within us. You spend so much time, you should spend so much time with God that when the options, the alternatives that usually come masquerading, looking, looking good, looking like the truth, but you spend so much time with God hearing his voice that when the lies do come, you, you just know. You just know that it's false. I don't have to think about it. Listening for his voice. So truth is not yours. And one way we determine what the truth is is listening to his voice. Secondly, truth comes to us piece by piece. There's a 1999 movie called The Matrix. Have you ever seen The Matrix? It's a pretty sweet movie. Um, now it looks kind of outdated when you watch it again because it was like 25 years ago. But still, it was an incredible movie at the time. I won't get into the details of the movie. I don't have time for that. 
but um, there's actually a lot of spiritual parallels. But uh, the characters in the movie can sit in a chair and download any skill or ability that you can think of, right? Like, you want to learn karate? Boom. It's like shoving an Atari pack in the back of your brain. You want to learn how to speak Spanish? Done. You want to learn how to be a CPA? Bam, I can do your taxes. Whatever. Just port it in, download it, truth. It's not how human life is, right? We don't download stuff immediately, at least not yet, hopefully. We don't download stuff immediately. Truth comes to us piece by piece. Like, I'm 44. When I was 20 years old, I didn't, you know, of those 24 years, I've gotten truth piece by piece in my life, and you have too, right, as the years go by. The Lord, is he's so kind. He's so good. He's piece by piece. He'll give you something each day. Just a little bit more, a little new facet, a little new prompting to show you how great his love is for you. It's not like you just download it all at once and you're done, like an update from OS or something like that, iOS. It comes piece by piece. Like um, my grandmother, God rest her soul, a wonderful Christian lady, born in Tazewell, Virginia in 1920. She passed away a few years ago. And when I go to her house in Clemens when I was a little boy, she always had a puzzle on the table. Usually, like, one time I went in there, she had a 3,000-piece puzzle. I mean, you got some time on your hands when you do a 3,000-piece puzzle. That's like a rainy day at the beach puzzle. And she had this huge puzzle. And I'm like eight or nine years old. And I was like, well, how are we going to do this? She said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find all the corners, and we're going to find the edging, and we're going to group all the colors together, you know, and then we're going to get started. I'm like, okay, well, that's about 200 pieces down. We've got 2,800 to go, and we'll finish this puzzle when I'm 16. But it was a patient, you know, when you, when you build a puzzle, there's, there's a patient, you have to be, have to be patiently um, passionate, tenacious, to put it together. And as you do it, though, you see this dawning realization of this bigger picture that, that you would never quite were sure was going to happen. And, and it all sort of comes together, this, this sense of chaos that gets transformed into beauty. You have this sense of completion. You know, the truth of God is like that for his people, that he wants to give good gifts to you and I, and he does. Like my grandmother helping me to help me find the pieces to put together, the Holy Spirit has come, right? as our helper, our counselor, our guide, our advocate, to help the truth come together in your life, to help you put the pieces together, piece by piece. It's not going to download immediately, but it might take time. But he wants to reveal himself to you, but it's not going to be in your timing, typically. And then lastly, truth often leads through pain. You may have heard this phrase before, you shall know the truth, and it will make you free, but first it will make you miserable. Sometimes this is true. This is a hard truth, but it's true. Truth, many times, is inconvenient, particularly truths that you read in the Bible. There are many times I've read things in the Bible, and I thought, how how inconvenient, Jesus. You want me to go serve the poor? That's inconvenient. I don't want to do that. For example, you could hear words like Romans chapter 7 that says that there is nothing good in your flesh and that through sin you inherit death. That's good news, right? Typically, no. Or that, further in Romans chapter 7, that the human heart is an idol-making machine. That's what we love to do, is elevate other things onto the thrones of our lives besides God. It can be painful to hear Jesus' words in Matthew 7, a lot of Jesus' words in Matthew, but particularly Matthew 7, 
where we love to point out the faults in others, but we're really bad about pointing out the faults in ourselves, right? That's an inconvenient truth, but it's a good truth. It's troubling and painful to hear that we should not hate our enemies, but we should in fact love them. I don't have time for that, God. That's inconvenient. That's kind of painful to my ego. It's inconvenient to hear that God loves the poor, and that he wants us to serve the people on the margins of society. That's inconvenient. I don't have time for that with my schedule. Did you, Jesus, can I inform you of what's in my Google calendar today? That's kind of painful. But sometimes truth leads you through pain. I was, I, I'm a big college basketball fan, and I'm gonna quote a Duke story, which I'm not a Duke fan, but I respect Duke basketball, I do. I went to Cameron Indoor a few years ago, and it was an amazing experience. Wake Forest still lost, which is what I expected, but it was amazing. I saw an interview with J.J. Redick, and he, he uh, after his freshman year, you know, he was, almost, he was a great player right at his freshman year, too. His freshman year, they went to the Final Four, but they lost. He's 19 years old, and Redick said, I got back to school, I was doing the whole party thing, I was in a frat, drinking a lot, having a good time. He said, Coach K cut me to pieces. He called me into his office and sat me down, and he said, JJ, you weren't ready to win a championship because you're not ready to be a championship-type player. And he said, at 19 years old, it devastated me. Like, it's Coach K. He's a, he's a coach of the dream team. I mean, one of the dream teams. He's a coach of Team USA basketball. I mean, he's one of the best coaches ever, and you're 19 years old. And he, just, he, and he said, it cut me to the core, but Reddick said he was right. He was right. And it, he said, from that moment, I was determined to never be that guy again. So sometimes truth will lead you into a place that's painful. But see, even Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord rebukes those that he loves. He chastens those that he holds to himself. Why? Because he's holy because he's perfect, and we're not. So sometimes you're not going to get those good feelings, but other times you're going to get those good feelings, but it's going to be in the other side of being rebuked, maybe being chastened, maybe being convicted, and that's okay. I would encourage you in your spiritual life to avoid always pursuing the next spiritual high being consume, a consumer mindset all the time, that you have to be edified all the time. Sometimes it's just not how God works. Now, this is a hard truth. This is a true truth. Sometimes you have to be willing to let the truth do its work. Sometimes God knows the best thing you need to hear is exactly what you need to hear. And he's, other, and he's gonna tell you things that somebody else would never tell you because he knows you better than you know yourself. Lastly, there's a truth I wanted to throw in. This is really a lie I think a lot of people believe, and it's a lie that keeps people from Jesus maybe more than any other. I was reading a study recently when they asked, um, they surveyed a bunch of Christian religious people, how do you think God feels about you when you come to him in prayer? Like when you get on your knees at night and, and you pray. Getting on my knees is harder, by the way. When you sit on your bed at night and you pray, how do you think God feels about you? And over 85% of the respondents said, I think he's ashamed of me. 
true. I think he's ashamed of me. I think God is disappointed in me. Why would you want to come before a God that you think is perpetually disappointed in you? What's inherent in that feeling, and we've all felt that, and I have too, that shame. What's inherent in that feeling is that it's all about your works. It's all about what you could do to make God love you more, right? I haven't done enough. I sinned too much. I screwed up. And so God doesn't love me as much as he loves somebody else. This is, the, this is a malicious lie. When Jesus said, I've come to tear down the walls, I've come to set people free, I've come to break chains, this is what he's talking about, right? This is what he's talking about. I have come to shine light in darkness. Man, that's a dark lie. That I have to do stuff to make God love me more. That the world says, do, do, do. The gospel says, done. I've done it for you. It is everything about his work on your mind and your behalf. Entirely a work of grace, what Jesus has done. He has come to be a champion for you. He has not come to condemn the world, right? Yes, he has not come to condemn you. He has not come to make you perpetually disappointed, to make you perpetually in a place of shame. That's not good news of any day that I want to hear. Now, unfortunately, a lot of churches peddle that message. Yes, you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. You should be ashamed of yourself before God. Oh, that is spiritual poison. That is not how God wants his people to live. So I'm going to pray as we continue to worship, friends, receive the love of God for yourself to know that his love for you is greater than you can possibly even imagine. There's no depth or height or distance to it. It's eternal and pervasive and constant. It has nothing to do with your ability to earn it and everything with your ability to simply receive it for yourself. So let's pray. God, as we continue to worship you, thank you for your truth, your truth that says that we are your beloved that you have come to save the sinners. You have come to reconcile the lost. You have not come to make us disappointed and ashamed of who we are in your presence, God. That you have already paid for the penalty of our sins. It's been done. It is finished, as you said. And now, thankfully, God, thanks to you, we're on the other side of Easter. We're on the other side of the resurrection. We have an opportunity, Lord, to know the goodness of who you are.